You know, brethren, at this time of the year, I, I can't help but to um, think about the question that I think I've shared with a lot of you with regards to uh, occasionally this coming up over the, at least the course of my ministry and, frankly, the uh, uh, exposure in God's church where an individual will come up or make the argument or debate the issue about the fact that you Sabbath keepers don't really take time to acknowledge and or to uh, respect or enjoy the resurrection because, you see, Easter, when you think of Easter, Automatically, I mean, coming from a normal Sunday-keeping tradition, I shouldn't say normal, I'll say traditional, uh, a traditional Sunday-keeping background of Christianity, you think terms of, when you think of Easter, as what? The resurrection. Automatically, you go immediately right to the resurrection. You don't think too much about the crucifixion. Yeah, I mean, the crucifixion is part of it, but the emphasis, the emphasis is oftentimes on the um, the uh, resurrection. And so the question goes something like this, that you guys don't celebrate or you don't really pay honor or tribute to the resurrection. And I, and I, I say to that uh, question, of course, the answer is no, that's not true. Uh, we just celebrate it later. And they always kind of look at me like the deer in the headlights and wonder where I'm going with that because they don't get it. But see, what you get and what I have understood and come to recognize God is one of the best, biggest, most detailist engineers in the universe. He has engineered a design that affords us an understanding in a segmented fashion that affords us the, what you could say, I would hope by now you're beginning to get, easy comprehension of what he's doing in a thumbnail sketch through the holy days. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean each holy day, brethren, is a segmented block based on an event that is underscored by a very important spiritual reality, truth, and necessity in order to get you from mortal to immortal. The objective is to get you from your current temporary condition to your eternal, immortal condition. And in a thumbnail sketch, he's designed the meaning and process of how he's doing that through, a thumbnail sketch, the truisms, the truths of the holy days. You know, I was in water treatment for 33 years, building, designing, managing, uh, engineering, water treatment equipment, every component of a process or of a system, depending on the application, was a little bit different than the other one. You don't design the same water system for a pharmaceutical manufacturing company to a design of an ECOAT manufactured system for General Motors or Honda or Toyota. It's a different system, different components, because there's different steps in the engineering process. In God's case, he has an engineered and designed process that affords you and I the ability through, as long as we go through these blocks, through these segments, to get from A and ultimately end up at Z. All points in between are met, assuming we understand and process the proper behaviors, the proper adherences, 
And of course, the qualifying measures that God makes determinations on to either qualify or disqualify our efforts. Now, am I preaching a gospel of works? No, I'm not. Remember, you're saved by grace. Don't take me out of context. No doubt about it. It is a gift of God so that no man can say it's by my works. We get that. That's 2020. There's no problem there. We understand that that's how that works. But don't forget this little caveat, this little lingering element of truth. You are rewarded by works. You are rewarded by works. And yes, you can lose your salvation. Not once saved, always saved. There's no such thing in your Bible that's taught. And regardless of what some traditional Christian denominations teach, it's not there. You can spin, twist, and do whatever you want to do in order to try to get that extrapolated out of those words from uh, Genesis to Revelation, but it's not there. It's not there. You are at risk until you hit the dirt. Pardon the pun, but you know what I'm talking about. Once you're in the grave, you're in your safe zone. Your legacy is what it is at that point because at that point, we understand from the Bible, it's over for all intents and purposes. There's no work. There's no education. All the memory of you, even your hate, your emotions are all at rest. There's not even, according to Psalms, praise of God in the grave where thou goest. So what does that mean? That means once you hit the grave, you're in your safe zone. It's done. And therein lies a very important component with the whole thing with regards to Jesus Christ. Now, coming back to this question about the resurrection and, of course, uh, the idea that here we are, Sabbath keepers, you know, going ahead and observing what's called Passover, and then to make what some traditional Christians would view it a bad situation worse, days of unleavened bread, what, what does that have to do with the resurrection of Christ? Well, it has everything to do with the resurrection of Christ as you take your steps one by one through the segmented design of this process. First things first, brethren. Passover. It's the first step in the whole process. First things first in a water treatment system. You got to lay the concrete for the pads so that the equipment could be level. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the first step. There's no cheating about that. Because if you set the system up on uneven ground and so forth and so on, you, you create a whole array of potential problems later on in the design and development of the system. You can't skip. You can't cut corners. You can't do a shortcut. You've got to take each step at a time. I bet you didn't think I was going to get to a scripture. Let's go to a scripture. <laughs> We're going to start over here at 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. It's important that we take each step at a time. The Apostle Paul clarifies this for us over here in 1 Corinthians 11, where he states, For I received, in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I've received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, 
that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he broke it, he gave thanks, and he said, Look, take, eat, this is my body, verse 24, which it's broken for you. This is uh, this do in remembrance of me. Also, verse 25, in the same manner, he also took a cup of wine. He supped this cup. Verse 25 is the New Testament in my blood. This do you as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, look at this. Verse 26. This is important. This is why we take a moment and stop to observe Passover because Passover stops us in our tracks and forces us to understand that there's an underscoring element, an underpinning value to you personally so that you can make a personal connection with God. It's important that you understand that you need to make a personal connection to God. And why? And hopefully in understanding what we're about to read in verse 26 and why Passover is focused on that element of the process, we'll come back to you and you will understand and comprehend that there should be a sense of appreciation and gratitude for what was done for you. So that you go on from there, hopefully you grow in the grace and knowledge of God through Christ, understanding the Father, not because of a sense of entitlement, but through a very deeply enriched appreciation and sense of gratitude for what was done for you. Look at this, verse 26. Notice what Paul says. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's resurrection... No, no, you show his death. Why? So that you understand, brethren, what Jesus went through, what God the Father went through for you personally. Because if there was any, as you've often heard, one, just one person on earth, you, and God intended to redeem you back to him, this process was the process that was designed and engineered. Remember, this whole process, and what process am I talking about? You know the word. It's called salvation. It's the salvific program. It's the process of salvation, the program of salvation, of which we're part and parcel to. And it's that process that Jesus and the Father engineered, here it is, remember, before the world was. This whole thing was a predetermined, predetermined, predestined process they engineered before the world was. It was a prehistoric time before the world was when they began to develop this idea and then design the system by which they were going to get these mortals created in their image from point A to become immortals and made of the same material that they themselves are made of. Spirit as Jesus said, like the wind to Nicodemus when he explained it. The future of you and I is to become some kind of spirit being of immortal material that no longer can die once we shed this tabernacle and inherit, embrace a new tabernacle. Do you get the, the term tabernacle? You sit down the line, the engineering process? 
You see how all this stuff kind of plays together? It's all linked. It's all like dominoes. One is next to the other. They all stand together. One falls, the others fall. You've got, they all are built on each other. Passover is at the foundation. And it is why, the reason why is because it's predicated on the death of the Creator. Notice over here, and this is interesting, and it's important, I think, that we recognize this. In John chapter 10, John chapter 10, Jesus states this very clearly in this um, uh, portion of Scripture where he states in verse 15, As the Father knows me, this is John chapter 10, verse 15, As the Father knows me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. And of course, we understand he's talking about Gentiles as well. He wasn't only talking about the house of Israel. He didn't only come to save the Jews. He didn't only come to save the house of Israel. He came to save all people because the original intent anyway of God's plan, if the truth were known even in the Old Testament, was all about grafting the Gentiles in through the circumcision of faith of which would be engaged and commenced at the death of the sacrifice of the Word. That was what was understood. That's what they designed before the world was. So they knew what they were doing. They knew what they were doing. But here's an interesting point. This being, the Word, is telling us something very important here. He says in verse 17, Therefore does my Father love me. This is verse 17 now, chapter 10, book of John. Because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment, that is, that authority, that reality, that realization was given to him, the commandment was given to him by the Father. He received it from the Father. So in essence, what we're talking about here, brethren, is that Jesus, the Word, did not, he wasn't forced, he wasn't coerced, he wasn't mandated and shoved into this role. He agreed to it and willingly, voluntarily laid his life down. For you and for me, knowing full well the Father would meet his portion of the agreement, which was three days and three nights later, he would give his life back to him. Not a day and a half, three days and three nights, like Jonah was in the belly of the big fish, not a whale necessarily, <laughs> a big fish perhaps even specially designed by God. We don't know that. But we do know that it was like three days and three nights. And when you go in the Hebrew, and you get the Hebrew, and you extrapolate the Hebrew, it is three days and three nights. So if you extrapolate that out of the New Testament, and that's the sign Jesus says he's going to be in the grave, guess what? If the Hebrew says three days and three nights, well, then that's what Jesus meant. Because in most cases, Jesus was probably speaking in Hebrew. Yeah, he could speak Greek, probably. Maybe even Aramaic. But in many cases, he was speaking Hebrew. We got the translation in Greek, but that doesn't necessarily mean he was speaking always in Greek. 
But here's the point. Over here in John 17, and we're going to read uh, some of that in the Passover uh, service, but I want to bring your attention to this because this is an important element that we recognize that when Jesus agreed voluntarily to become incarnate in flesh, he put himself in grave danger. He was in major jeopardy. There was a risk involved here that was in, I mean, comprehensible, frankly. This was a being that was divine. He was already an immortal. He was already pre-existing. There was never a beginning with him. And in his condition at that time, in his current state at that time as the Word, there was never an end to him. He was an immortal. He was eternal. He was the Lord. He was the one who was the beginning, and he is everlasting and on. I mean, he is the I am that I am, as he introduced himself to Moses. And so here in John 17, this time he is in a prayer. Now, this is an interesting item here, because this is the real Lord's Prayer, by the way. Our Father who art out in heaven is not the Lord's Prayer. That is an example prayer, that if ever you're lost for figuring out what kind of format or template you should use, go back to that, you know. What's the first thing? My fa- our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Start there. Praise God, you know. But that's not the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is right here, John 17. This is the pray- prayer that he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, or not in the Garden of Gethsemane, because it appears as though this was uh, one that maybe uh, was around the table that night at the Last Supper, because over in chapter 18 and verse 1, it says after Jesus prayed, if the sequence is true, we read here in verse 1, and then uh, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook of Cedron, where was the garden into which he entered and his disciples. In the sequence of that time, he went into the Garden of Gethsemane at that time, and of course we know the rest of the story where he was betrayed by uh, essentially perhaps his many as five, six hundred Roman soldiers who came to uh, arrest him with Judas. But in chapter 17, that if indeed the sequence holds, we see here a prayer that he prays in the upper room around the table with all of his buddies. And this is a very interesting chapter uh, because it's broken out into roughly about three or four categories, actually four categories. I just want to read the first category, which goes uh, uh, to and through to verse 8. This is the first category, verse 1 now. These words spoke Jesus, lifting up his eyes to heaven and saying, Father, the hours come, glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you. As you have given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you, the Father, have given him. This is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christos, that is the anointed, Yeshua, the anointed, that's not his last name, that's the anointed, whom you sent. I've glorified you. Jesus is saying here, he didn't glorify himself. I've glorified you. That was my whole job on this earth. I finished the work which you gave me to do. Now, O Father, glorify me with your own self, with the glory, notice this, which I had with you before the world was. A clear, concise statement, Jesus preexisted. Jesus, like E.T., wanted to go home. 
He wanted to go home. He was done. He finished up his job. He established a lot of things. He was coming across the finish line. He sees it in a distance. It's the last lap. Don't think for a moment. Satan didn't know that too. Satan was there that night around the table in the upper room. As a matter of fact, we know he entered into Satan the devil. The Greek means he went into, he penetrated the mind of Judas, of which resulted, we understand, in the betrayal ultimately of Jesus that night for 30 pieces of silver. My point is that Satan was pulling out all the stops. He knew, he saw the finish line, he saw the runner, he knows what, how much time he's got, because once he's in the grave, it's done. Jesus is in the safe zone. Don't think for a minute from the stands, whether it was the bleachers or the box seats, that the Father's watching this too. Put yourself in this position. Brethren, this is one of the most fantastic, awesome, universal events in the history of our existence. Those final moments, and they were just moments in time, comparably speaking, when you're on the level of a spirit being. I mean, if a thousand years is like a day, what's a few hours? A few seconds? <laughs> you know, I mean, when you put it in perspective, it's, it's an amazingly short time, and there they are watching all this drama, watching all this intensity. You talk about stress. What's at risk? This being, the word, could lose his existence because don't think for a moment, you know it as well as I do. If you read Hebrews chapter 2, you understand he too, Jesus, was subject unto bondage of the death, of death. He was unto bondage. He was subject to bondage unto death. Death meaning what? Meaning the second death. Death. Like we're all under bondage to, you and I. We're still under bondage not to the first death. The first death's not even death. I mean, I don't want to be cute, but you know what I'm talking about. There's a resurrection associated with that death that you and I experience, our loved ones experience. It's a, what you could say rude interruption of life because you're going to be resurrected again one way or the other. As long as there's a resurrection on the other side of your sleep, and that's why Jesus characterized it as sleep, that's really not death. Death is the second death. That's real death. The death where there's no more resurrection, it is you're exhumed. <laughs> You're dust. You're done. You don't exist. The wages of sin is death. I submit to you, brethren, Jesus was subjected unto that. He was in bondage unto death like you and I, and if he wasn't, then you and I don't have a Savior. In every fashion like unto us, he was subjected to the same passions and distresses the same fears and anxieties, the same doubts and the same vulnerabilities to betrayals, to being talked about negatively, to be mocked. He was subject to all those things. And Jesus, that night, prayed very much so, I'm coming home. He says here, glorify me, which I had with you before the world was. I've manifested your name. That was one of his portions of the mission, to introduce the crystal 
pristine nuance of the relationship between the Word and the Father. Not a trinity. Not a, not a neo-pagan truth. Not, not even truth. Falsity. It's truth to them. God's a family. There's distinction between the Word who's a being and the Father who's a being. And Jesus revealed. He came to clarify and to formally introduce my Father. That's what he did. That was one nuance, one little small portion, a segment of his mission, not to mention the fact that he came to establish the church, he came to trailblaze the resurrection, and all the things that go along with that. But one of it was to introduce the Father to us and to make it clear in understanding the relationship and the nature of the Elohim, the family of God. And we understand that there is the Father, and now there is the Son, and we are in the womb of the church, the mother of us all, who is gestating a lot of impregnated beings who are in the process of begettal, hoping to be ultimately birthed into the kingdom of God. That's why marriage is such a holy institution, because it signifies, it parallels, it is the framing of the relationship that God has with his church. And therein lies, as you can draw your own analogies to why the uh, situation of uh, other variations of that are abominable. He says here in verse 7, now they, know, uh, now they have known that all things whatsoever you've given me are of you. For I have given unto them the words which you gave me, And they've received them, this is verse 8, chapter 17, book of John, and have known surely that I came out from you, and they have believed that you did, in fact, send me. And it goes on, this prayer, of course, in three more uh, categories. Then he prays for his disciples. Uh, That goes on through about verse 19. And then he prays for you and me in verses 20 through about 24. And then he goes back and closes it in the last two verses of 25 and 26. But from that prayer then, brethren, they sing the hymn and they leave the upper room and they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas has left the room and is on his way to the high priest to betray Christ for 30 pieces of silver. In the meantime, the boys leave the upper room to go to their place in the garden where Judas also knew where they normally would go. That's why it was so easy to find them. And he proceeds, Jesus does. And let's pick up the story over here in Matthew chapter 26 real quickly. Matthew chapter 26, because something very interesting happens there in the garden prior to the betrayal or the arrest and, and ultimate incarceration of Jesus, in, beginning in verse 36, we read this. Then comes Jesus with them to the place called Gethsemane and says unto them to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray. And he takes with him Peter and the two boys, the two sons of thunder, which were the children of Salome, which there's a good chance Salome was the sister of Mary, which makes the boys of thunder Jesus' cousins. I mean, this is a family thing. These boys are not strangers. Peter was in the neighborhood. Jesus grew up in the city of Nazareth. They were business people. The families were known. John the Baptist was the cousin of Jesus through Elizabeth. These were people. It was a a family affair in some cases. It was an interesting interplay with all these personalities. And he goes on here, and he says, Jesus does, 
after he takes those uh, with him, uh, then he says unto them, My soul's exceedingly sorrowful. Don't just read over that. Get into the Greek. What does he mean by that? This is Jesus. He's, he's disclosing something about his inner being that night. This is the word, a divine being, incarcerated, contained, confined, prevented from the supernatural abilities and empowerment that he had before his incarnation. Now he's vulnerable. Now he's breakable. Now he can be gotten. He can be disqualified. He can be nailed. He can be obliterated. He can lose. He says here, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Tarry you here. Watch with me, he says. He went a little further, and he fell flat on his face. He was so emotionally upset. He was so emotionally. He fell on his face, and he prays. Look at what he says here. Thumbnail sketch. Matthew captures it. Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let the cup pass from me. What? Jesus is doubting? Oh, my Father, let the cup pass from me. You know, I've been thinking about this. Maybe we ought to do a different thing here. Maybe, maybe we ought to rethink this. Maybe, you know, is there an option? Father, is there an option? But then he says, nevertheless, not as I will, but you. He comes back unto the disciples. He finds them sleeping. He can't believe it. He finds them sleeping. He is so emotional. He is on adrenaline. He knows what's coming in the next few minutes, maybe an hour, hour and a half. He doesn't know when it's going to actually come, but he knows it's coming that night. He is on adrenaline, running, high speed. He comes back and his disciples are sleeping. He comes unto the disciples, finds them asleep, and he says to Peter, Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch, pray, that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh... It's weak. He goes back a second time, verse 42, and prays and says, Oh, my Father, if this cup may pass, if this cup may not pass away from me, well, this is a little bit different. In other words, he's beginning to embrace it. He's beginning to accept the fact that, guess what? We've got to go through this on the original, on the original design. O oh, my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. He comes, finds them asleep again. Their eyes were heavy. He left them, went away. He did a third time, saying basically the same words that he said the second time. Over here in Luke 22, we add another little nuance to this same situation with Luke's report in chapter 22 and in verse 39. Let me bring you over here to verse 39, where again... We pick up the same story, but from Luke's vantage point, where he comes out uh, to the Mount of Olives, and verse 40, he, uh, 
was at the place where uh, he said unto them, Pray that you enter not into temptation. 41, Luke 22, he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast, kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if you be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, yours be done. And there appeared, this is interesting, there appeared an angel. Obviously, I don't know if it was planned. I don't know if it was spontaneous. I don't know if it was an impromptu thought, allowance. But it happened. There appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. Maybe this gives us good reason to understand why when he went back and prayed the second time that he was well aware they were going ahead with this. Maybe it was, you know what, I understand your agony, I understand your stress, but we got to do it this way. But the message came clear the second time he says, since, you know, basically a little stronger, if your will is to go ahead with it, then let's go ahead and do this. He says here, though, in verse 44, doesn't change anything, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And uh, his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. He became more intense, apparently resolved to going ahead in the direction that they were going to go in now. That agony means he was struggling. He was in emotional turmoil. He was borderline emotionally stressed, so much so that sweat was like blood coming out of him. Was it blood? I don't know. I've done a little bit of studies uh, on that. It is a possibility from what I understand. Is it just like blood? I don't know that either. I'm not going to take a stand on it one way or the other. But the fact of it is, he was struggling. That's the point. That's the point, brethren. He was in the midst of a major struggle within himself. And he was in anguish and agony. And obviously, there was in this mix second thoughts going along. And it's no wonder It's no wonder, brethren, because as we come to understand over here in Isaiah, and I want to go there for a moment and point something out to all of us because it's good for us to recognize this. What happened to him that night after the Romans got him and the high priest got his way, his visage, his body, verse 14, chapter 52 the book of Isaiah, was, was so marred that many were astonied. What's that word mean? It comes from a Hebrew word which means stunned. It means wasted in wonder. It means to be made numb, devastated, stupefied, amazed. Those around him... Keep your finger there in uh, chapter 52 for a moment and go real quickly uh, to Mark 15. Mark 15, 
add this to the mix. Mark 15, verse 34, in the ninth hour, about three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lakama sabachthani, which is being interpreted. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of them that stood by, heard it, said, behold, he's calling for Elijah. And one ran and filled a sponge with vinegar, not water, vinegar, put it to, on a reed, gave it to him to drink, and the other said, let him alone, let's see if Elijah will come and take him down. Jesus cried up with a loud voice, gave up his breath. The veil in the temple was rent in two, top to the bottom. The centurion which stood over against him saw that, that he cried out and gave up the ghost. And he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also, here were the stupefied ones. Here were the emotionally numbed ones. Here were the ones that were made in wonderment, totally amazed at what they saw on that stake. There were women afar off, verse 40, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the less, and Joseus, and Salome, mother of the sons of thunder, who also, when he was in Galilee, followed him and ministered unto him, and many other women, many other women which came up with him unto Jerusalem. All of these, and now even... Uh, was come because it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath. And we understand through John it was the day before the first day of unleavened bread. It was not the weekly Sabbath. It was the first day of unleavened bread. But that's another story. We won't digress into that. But it's interesting in Psalms, and I want to go back to Psalms 22, because if you want to get into Jesus' head... You want to get between his ears, go to Psalms 22, because it's prophetic from King David himself, very prophetic, connecting you up into the inner psyche of Jesus while he's on the stake. Notice the turmoil that he's in. We pick up verse 1, my God, my God. What did he say over there in Mark? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You're so far from helping me, from my words and my roaring. Verse 6, but I'm a worm, no man, a reproach of men, despised of the people. They see me, they laugh to scorn, they shoot out their lips, they shake their heads, saying he trusted in the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in the Lord. Look at that, you know, they're wagging their heads. Poor soul, boy, oh boy, look at that guy. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. You did make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from the womb. You are my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. For there is none to help. Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me around. They gape upon me with their mouths as ravening and a roaring lion. I'm a poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like potsherd, and my tongue, it cleaves to my jaws. You have brought me into the dust of death. Dogs have compassed me. 
The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Any doubt that we're talking about prophetically here, Jesus, here, this should erase that. This is the mind of Christ on the stake, brethren. You're between his ears right now. He's seeing, you're seeing things from his eyes and what's going on around him and his sense of notion about the circumstances he finds himself surrounded by. And he says in verse 17, I may tell all my bones, they look and they stare upon me. No bones were broken. Not a bone was broken. According to the Passover lamb, you don't break the bones of the lamb. Fulfillment of prophecy here. Very important nuance. Very important detail. God the Father would not allow his bones to be broken, but they were showing. Those floggers of the Romans, they were trained in many respects to take a man to the edge of death by pulling great chunks of flesh right off of his skeletal system. His bones were revealed. He was looking down on his bones, he says here in verse 17, and they stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots. They've gambled his clothes away. And if you want to make the connection with the New Testament, look up Matthew 27, verse 35. Chain reference your Bible there. And you'll see again another fulfillment of prophecy by King David writing here almost, brethren, about a thousand years before this happened. A thousand years. Put this in context. This is miraculous. It's miraculous this book was maintained. These are interesting nuances that prove Jesus is Messiah. Jesus, the Christ, is indeed, is indeed, regardless of what the Koran says, the Savior of humankind. Verse 19, But be not far from me, O Lord. O my strength, haste thee. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling, or my only one, from the power of the dogs, or of the dogs. Save me from the lion's mouth, for you have heard me from the horns of the unicorn. I will declare your name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise you. And again, you can go uh, to many New Testament scriptures and see also that particular uh, scripture fulfilled as well. This Event, brethren, is quite an event when you characterize it in light of Hebrews chapter 1. And I want to go there. If you noticed in the course of that dialogue, that narrative that we just read in Psalms 22, Jesus on multiple occasions throughout those scriptures in 22 there, Psalms, states, don't leave me alone, be near, hear my roaring. He's crying for God's closeness, for the assurance that he would be there, the Father, that he would not leave him alone. But yet here in Hebrews, and again, I don't know. I don't know if this perspective isn't, if indeed is the right perspective, but I sure do know that it's plausible in this respect because something caused Jesus to scream out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Psalms 22, verse 1, it starts out with that very statement that David wrote. There was a reason for that. What was the reason for it? Perhaps right here in Hebrews 1, verses 4, uh, verses uh, 1 through 3, gives us a little indication. He says, God, 
in various, that's what the word sun-dried times, various times in different divers' manners, uh, spoke in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoke to us by uh, his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. This is the Creator God. This is the Creator God who gave his life up for his creation. This is scriptural, brethren. This is an important recognition to give honor and maximum appreciation for what was at stake here. The very Creator who made everything, invisible and visible, spiritual and material, came, divested himself, made himself vulnerable and destructible, and in faith gave everything to the Father who would take care of him for the 33 and a half years he lived incarnate. Even, even in death. It's an awesome story. But notice this. Verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and express image of his person, he was the iconic replica of the Father. I don't know physically whether he was, but emotionally, personality-wise, in all of his persona, his profile, he was the law personified. The Old Testament, I've often characterized it as the writing of the law, the Torah, of course, the prophets, and the writings. That was the written word of God. But then the, the word became flesh. And I've often characterized it as, okay, you didn't listen to me when I just gave you my word, so watch my lips. <laughs> and he made Jesus. And he, he incorporated, inculcated the law in action. In action. And Jesus became the iconic replica of the law enacted. Therein lies why he's our model. He's our example. He's the reason for why we look to him for understanding and advice on how to be. He says here of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power when he had, here it is, brethren, look at this, by himself purged our sins sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Does that mean that there was a moment in eternity, a moment in time, that the Father literally turned his back on Jesus and Jesus had that notion, that sense of abandonment from the very Father, the one whom he had confidence would indeed resurrect him, the one whose hands he was in at the moment, I don't know for sure, but I sure do know this. It certainly does present a plausible consideration for the fact that there was something underscoring, underpinning Jesus' crying out, illustrating his sense of abandonment, because that's what that is. My God, my God, why have you, you know, uh, forsaken me? If I'm with my friend and I've got a, a buddy with me and all of a sudden he walks away from me, it would make sense, hey, what, what are you doing? Why are you forsaking me? Come back here, you know. I don't know, but it does certainly make good plausible sense that that did, in fact, happen because we know here, scripturally speaking, the writer of Hebrews makes it very clear to us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that it was indeed by himself that he purged our sins. 
So herein lies the, the framing of this whole thing, brethren. Because what we don't understand is what the Father, the angelic hosts, all those that were watching this drama play out, this saga play out, and as it was getting closer and closer to the finish line, with Satan the devil running along the, in parallel, trying to figure out what can he do to get this guy to give it up, because he's got him right where he wants him. He's hung up on a stake, beaten to a pulp, hard to even see, doesn't even look human. He's got everybody that's looking at him astonished, in wonderment, amazed, stupefied at the destructive visage they were viewing this individual who was on the stake and claimed to be the very Son of God and didn't make the connection yet of the suffering servant. Many of them didn't make that connection to that uh, chapter 53 of the book of Isaiah. They, They didn't make that connection. These were Jews. They didn't understand. Their concept of the Messiah was that was the kingdom of God. They'd never connected Jesus Christ as the Messiah that was going to fulfill the prophecies of the prophets. You put yourself in their context, in their timeline, and you begin to understand what a sad situation this was for the observers and what an intense personal event this was for the Father, the angelic host, the 24 elders, and, of course, Jesus. I don't know if you could put yourself in a position where you're, you're a dad and your son is at risk, my first reaction is to protect my son. My first reaction is, what? And jump in and get in the mix and do everything I can, not restrain myself and allow it to go on. That, too, took immense restraint. I, I, can't, I can't, for the life of me, uh, argue the point of releasing an angel to him Go encourage him. Strengthen him. we got to get through this. There's a lot of people, a lot of things, process. Got to be successful. Got to make this happen for everybody. There was a lot at stake here, brethren. A lot at stake. John chapter 16. John chapter 16. Important chapter. Important chapter. I suggest all of us read 14 through 17, 18 over the next coming days. John 16. You've heard me use this scripture many times, especially around this time of the year. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have trouble, tribulation. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world, and in retrospect, praise God, we have a Savior who successfully navigated, negotiated the obstacles, and made it into the safe zone, beating, winning against time and intensity and circumstances that affords now the process to flow. I used to always get a kick out of after we installed a water treatment system to turn on the power, (laughs) open up the valves, and let it go and see if it works (laughs) the way it should work, you know. (laughs) Turn that puppy on, flip that switch, you know, open up the valves, fill the tanks, get the pumps running, let's see what happens. It's a happy time. 
It works. Imagine that. <laughs> you know, what a happy time. Be of good cheer. He's in. He's in a safe zone. Yeah! We made it. They're in for those who want it, for those who stay with it, for those who won't give it up and sell their birthright. In chapter 16, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I do want to point something out because this chapter is very prophetic and very cogent to this whole presentation. Chapter 16, obviously through uh, verses 1 through about 15, he talks about the Holy Spirit. He talks about what is going to be the result of his successfully accomplishing this segment of the mission. And he introduces to us, uh, of course, uh, some things regarding the Holy Spirit. But in verse 16, a prophecy begins. A prophecy begins. It's very prophetic. In verse 16, we begin to read this. A little while, he says, Jesus does, and you shall not see me. He's talking to his boys, his buddies. They're in the upper room. This is dinner talk around the table. This is the Last Supper. That's the, that's the timing of this. And they're sitting there breaking bread and talking and eating and having their dinner, their last meal. And he says here, a little while you shall not see me, and again a little while you shall see me, because I'm going to the Father. Now, verse 17, some of them, the disciples among themselves, what is this that he says unto us, a little while you shall not see me, and again a little while and you're going to see me because I'm going to the Father. And they said, therefore, they said, therefore what is this that he says this? A little while. We, we, we don't always talking about. What's he talking about? They're all confused. Well, Jesus picks up on it. Verse 19. He knew that they were desirous to ask him, and he says unto them, Do you inquire among yourselves of that I said a little while, and you shall not see me, and again a little while, and you shall? See, Jesus, right? Jesus knows what's going to happen. <laughs> he's, speaking, he's speaking from a done deal position. He knows he's coming back to life in three days. He knows that he's going into the grave. He's going to go into the tomb, not the grave necessarily, technically speaking. He's going into a tomb. He's going to be in that tomb for three days and three nights. He's coming out of there. He's coming out alive. He knows that. So a little while, you're not going to see me. But then in a little while, you're going to see me again. You're going to see me again. And he says here, in this uh, case, this is interesting. He says, and I'll... Now, this is of a certainty. That's what verily, verily means. Remember, I've often said that. This, this is of a certainty. Let me assure you, he says. That's what ver verily, verily means. Let me assure you, I say unto you, you shall not weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice. I'm sorry, you shall. I'm sorry, you shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice and you shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. Well, how does that work? What are you talking about, Jesus? Notice where he jumps. Verse 21, he goes right into the analogy of birthing. Notice, he says this, A woman, when she is in travail, has sorrow because her hours come. But as soon as she's delivered of the child, she remembers no more the anguish for the joy that a man is born into the world. You now, therefore, have sorrow. You're in the birth pains. You're in the pangs. You're, you're in the birthing process. You see all this. But then he says this. He goes on. But I will, uh, he says, uh, uh, verse, you therefore are sorrow. But I will see you, verse 22, but I will see you again. And your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man takes from you. 
And in that day, you shall ask me nothing. I assure you, he says, truly I'm saying this to you, whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. What's he talking? He's talking about the fact that when he comes back, there's not going to be any questions. He's going to come into a room with the doors shut, and poop, there he is. That's going to get your attention. You're going to say, whoa. And I'm going to say, that's for you too. You can make the same quantum leap. You can become like I'm now. I'm born again. This is the birthing process I'm talking to you about. He showed them all kinds of things. He could disappear into thin air. Remember the guys walking to the the city of Emmaus? And he just just, just disappeared. He's talking to them. And then when they finally recognize him, he gone. What? How can that be? Because he was made of a different material in a different type of body. Yet he could materialize in flesh. He could materialize so that Thomas could touch him. He could materialize the holes in his hand so Thomas could put his fingers in him to convince him that he was indeed the Messiah, that he was indeed the same guy that he saw up on that stake. Amazing stuff here, brethren. And he goes on and he he goes down through here. Hitherto, verse 24, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask you shall receive that your joy may be fulfilled. These things have I spoken unto you in the Proverbs and parables, but the time's coming when I shall no more speak to you in uh, parables, but I shall show you plainly of the Father. And he did in that post-resurrection ministry. For 40 days, he was showing them all kinds of things about what he was and how he could do certain things and of which he was sharing with them. They, too, could have this if indeed they hold the line and finish the course. At that day, you shall ask in my name, verse 26, and I shall say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came out from God. I came forth from the Father, I'm going, uh, and I'm come into the world. Again, I'm leaving the world, and I'm going to the Father. The disciples, they said unto him, Lo, how speakest thou plainly now in no parable? Now we are sure that you know all things, and need not any man should ask you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. And as I've said before, at the end of that, you would think, hey, let's high five. They believe me. Wow. Way to be, Jesus. Yeah. Hey. Up and down. You know, whoa. Yeah. I'm with you, buddy. We're together. Locked arms. Walking. In step. Yeah. We're buddies, right? Uh Jesus didn't take the bait. Jesus didn't take the bait. He didn't take the bait. He knew very well what was going to happen when these human beings really had to face the music. And this is the challenge, brethren, for all of us in the day and age that we live in. Because the times are coming when it's going to crank down on us Christians, as you're already seeing happening. And Jesus said right here, and confronted them all, he said, do you really believe? Do you really want to high-five me? Are you really there? Behold, Verse 32, hours coming, yes, is now come. <laughs> the hours come, it, it's come now. <laughs> you, you guys don't even know, it's come now. You're going to be scattered, every one of you, to his own. You're going to leave me alone, yet I'm not alone. Don't worry about me, I'm not alone, because the Father's with me. And then 33 comes along. We put it into context at the tail end here. And then he goes into chapter 17, the prayer. Brethren, you have a great King of kings and Lord of lords. 
you have a great Savior and Messiah who went through a hellacious, horrific experience for each and every one of us. This Passover, as you approach that time in your life, take it with great gratitude. Take it with deep appreciation and be fully aware of the comprehensive price that was paid so that you might be able to enter into that dimension that Jesus took 40 days to share with his buddies to show them that, you know what? Yes, you too can travel at the speed of thought. Yes, you too can appear and disappear. You can eat not because you have to. You can eat because you want to. You can do all kinds of things because you will be part of the God family. And that's a good thing because guess what? We succeeded in this process, in this engineered system, block by block, so that ultimately at Pentecost, yes, we will celebrate the resurrection because you see each component plays on the other. We have the Passover with the Days of Unleavened Bread that tells us we've got an obligation be right. Get sin out of your life and take in Christ daily so that you can achieve that resurrection as the next block of Pentecost illustrates. And what's that all lead to? The kingdom of God in the Feast of Trumpets and the binding of evil in the Day of Atonement and Satan himself so that the kingdom of God in, characterized by the Feast of Tabernacles can open up for the preparation of the rest of the dead so that they too can have their chance, and their choices. Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, atheists, agnostics will all have their chance. Thumbnail sketch. What a process. Praise God, brethren. He is risen.